chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Is there anybody here tonight where you're new to Colorado and this is your first march in Colorado? Anybody? Right back there? A couple of you? I remember when I moved here in 2000, I grew up in Oregon, spent most of my time in either Oregon or Washington, Idaho. So I'm thinking March starts to warm up and the tulips come out and the grass gets green and all this kind of stuff. And then it just kept snowing in March. I'm like, what? what's going on here? And they're like, oh yeah, March is the most snowy month that we have. I was like, and you guys call this spring? You're crazy, you know? Still getting used to the fact that March is really snowy. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the changes of seasons and we thank you for the moisture that you give to us. And Lord, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a joy to be able to see your creation. And God, as we look at the nation of Israel tonight from your word, we pray that you would give us a, a real biblical perspective. We thank you for the timing of this message. We see your hand is in it. Please give us ears to hear and, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. The timing of this message to me really is mind-blowing and amazing, and God's hand is definitely upon it because we're gonna talk about God's heart and plan and direction for the nation of Israel. If you've noticed the news, uh, the last 24 hours, it's all been about the nation of Israel. Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, came and spoke to our Congress, and I would encourage you to go to YouTube and type in Netanyahu, if you can figure out how to spell it. I had to look up how to spell Netanyahu, and watch the 38 minutes, the full speech that he gives, because I don't feel like our media did an accurate job of portraying what he said. And hopefully you've learned this uh, in your journey in life is you can't just trust the media. You can't just go to the media and, and say, well, this is the, the way that, that it happened. So I'd encourage you to go and watch uh, his speech because he begins as he's sharing with the United States Congress, it was kind of a surreal moment, with the book of Esther in, in his speech. And he's talking about how there's the Feast of Purim, which is tonight. The, the Israel's every year is, celebrates the Feast of Purim. And you may be saying, well, what's the Feast of Purim? It goes back to the book of Esther when God rescued the nation of Israel from the annihilation of a Persian nation. And then Netanyahu goes on to explain that Israel today currently is being threatened by a Persian nation. Iran is Persia historically. That's what they've always been called is Persia up until 1979 when there was a change in government and really Islamic State was set up there in Iran. And there's lots of people currently in Iran that don't want the Sharia law, but that's what has taken place. And so as we sit here tonight, it is the beginning of the Feast of Purim that they celebrate in Israel every year. Two years ago, when we were in Israel, we were in Israel during this particular feast. And they'll actually read through the book of Esther. And they'll cheer when Esther is read. And then they'll boo when Haman's uh, is read. And they dress up and they have a great feast. But it's all remembering God's deliverance. And so Netanyahu launched from there and began to describe if Iran gets to the place where they have nuclear weapons, they've already been very public that they want to destroy the nation of Israel and the United States. And sometimes we forget that they've stated that, but they're 
primary leader that's a religious leader that also takes control politically, he tweets about how he wants to destroy Israel. Like this isn't some secret about how Iran feels about the the nation of Israel. And there's just a a real sober moment if you watch that speech, Netanyahu's saying we're at a crossroads in history on how we handle this moment. And if Iran goes nuclear, then there's other nations in Israel that are gonna go nuclear, or in the Middle East, excuse me, that are gonna go nuclear as well. And we're gonna have this huge issue that is on our hands. And so he gives this real sober warning to our government and to, to our nation. So those two things, I think, make our study really relevant tonight. One is because Israel is in the news. The second is tonight is the Feast of Purim. And then here we are, Romans chapter 11, talking about God's heart for the nation of Israel. I think God has a message for us. So I wanna give you a little bit of just a background on more of the current history of Israel and then what's happening culturally coming against Israel and how that ties into biblical prophecy as well and then we'll get into this, this passage. So you look at Israel's history and they lose their land. They, get, they lose their land after the time of Christ. The temple is destroyed in AD 70 by, by the Romans. And then they don't have occupation of their land again till 1948. So by the fact that we live in a time where Israel is a country is an amazing thing. So believers from that time when Israel lost their land till 1948 when they would read prophecies in the Old Testament about Israel regaining their land, it was all future. They're looking to the future anticipation of Israel becoming a nation again. World War II takes place. There's the annihilation of the Jews, six million Jews that are are killed. And one of the responses to the aftermath of World War II was the nations of the world came and said, we're gonna give the land back to Israel. So that was in May of, of 1948. Well, that was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy in Ezekiel. So we're living in a time where biblical prophecy has been fulfilled. And you go over to Israel and you see how God has taken this little country you know, that you can drive from north to, to south in a, in a few hours, east to west. It's not a big country, and he's made it a fertile land. Again, fulfilling the prophecies in Ezekiel. And as you'll notice, what's happening currently is that many, many nations of the world are not favorable to Israel. And unfortunately, uh, the United States seems to be going in that direction as well. I, I hope it, it doesn't continue, but that ties into biblical prophecy as well. If you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's a conglomerate of nations that eventually are going to attack Israel and then God says that's enough and he intervenes. So the closer that we get towards the end of all times, the overall sentiment of the nation of Israel is gonna turn against the the Jewish people. And, And we're beginning to see that happen and take place. Now you have to understand this is not just a political issue. And if you've come to RMC for a long time, we really try to stick to the scriptures and give a biblical message and not necessarily a political message. Not that there's anything wrong with getting involved politically, but the church's job is to teach Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the nation of Israel, as you'll see tonight, this is a biblical issue. I'm gonna be reading to you from the scriptures. And I want you to think spiritually for a second. 
Satan wants the nation of Israel to be destroyed. Why? Because if the nation of Israel is destroyed, if all of the Jewish people are annihilated, then we find that the book of Revelations can't be fulfilled. Because Revelation says that there's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, which gives us 144,000. Satan knows the scriptures and he's busy trying to annihilate the Jewish people. He's not gonna succeed. God is gonna be faithful to do that. And even amongst a lot of churches and Christians and, and believers, I'm sure some of you tonight, you're not convinced biblically why you should support the nation of Israel. Why that you should be for God's chosen people. Now, I'm not saying that everything that Israel does as a nation is right and perfect. Just like not everything that we do as Christians is is right and perfect, but it doesn't cancel out the fact that they're God's people. And as you talk with believers, you may find more and more that there's believers in the scriptures, but they're not supportive to the nation of Israel. So I think that this chapter is really important. It's really important for you to understand that God does have a future plan for Israel and to believe the scriptures and to get behind what the Lord has said. In Genesis 12, verse three, God speaks to Abraham and he says, God made this promise to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse him who curses you and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. This goes to Abraham's descendants as well. God's saying, if you bless my people Israel, you will be blessed. Do you want a blessing from the Lord? Then bless the nation of Israel. Psalms 122, five through seven says, for thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. So God gives us a mandate there in the Psalms to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has gone through much turmoil and will continue to go through turmoil, so put them on your prayer list. So let's go through this study. Let's see God's heart for Israel. There's clear application for Gentile believers as well, those of us that have been grafted in. We begin in verse one of chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Could it be more clear for those that would say that God has rejected the nation of Israel, those that adopt a replacement theology, which means the church, the Gentile church has replaced the nation of Israel? The question's asked, has God cast away his people? And the answer is certainly not. How does this fit in with the message of Romans, the whole theme of the book of Romans? Remember, it's the righteousness of God revealed by faith, that righteousness comes into our lives through faith, not through our own works. At the end of chapter eight, by God's grace, we can't be separated from the love of God. Now, if that's true, then God has to be faithful to the nation of Israel because they're his chosen people. So Israel is an example of God's unconditional love. The fact that God doesn't cast them away gives us confidence as Gentile believers that God will not cast us away either. If God forgets the nation of Israel, then we would be standing on really shaky ground. We go on in verse one, it says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying one of the proofs that God's not done with the nation of Israel, Paul's saying, is look at my own life. Look at how God saved me. Look at how God redeemed me. Here Paul was the Jew of Jews, persecuting the church, and God saved him. 
And his life is a testimony of God's work amongst the Jewish people. Verse two, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Do you think it surprised the Lord to see Israel's idolatry? To, to see Israel deny Jesus as the Messiah largely? No, he understood that. He understood that from the very beginning when he chose Abraham. And Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel. And through Abraham's seed that the world would be blessed. Through Jesus Christ that the world would be blessed. What's amazing to me is that God would choose Israel knowing everything that he knows about them. And then it also amazes me that God would choose me and he knows everything about me. God would choose us and he knows everything about us. God even told the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy, you're not chosen because you're powerful. You're not chosen because you're strong. You're chosen because you're weak. They're a trophy of God's grace. Verse three, or did you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am alone and left, and they seek my life. Elijah had had it with who? Who's his complaint with? It's with Israel. And he comes to the Lord and saying, the whole land is filled with idolatry. They've set up their altars to, to Baal. Now they're coming against me, and they want to kill me. Jezebel had given the death threat to Elijah. Elijah's so discouraged that he's asking God to take him home to heaven. He wants his life to end. He wants to die. And this is the reminder that God gives to Elijah. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed their knees to Baal. Elijah was seeing no one that was faithful in Israel, but God says there's 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee that serve the one true living God. We get discouraged many times from our perspective and if we could only see from God's perspective. And sometimes we're discouraged with God's people. We're saying, what's wrong with God's people? Why doesn't God's people wake up? Why are God's people coming against me? And God's saying there's a faithful remnant. Always throughout history, there's a faithful remnant that God works by his grace. And in these crazy, turbulent times that can cause a response to fear, you've gotta know that there's a remnant. There's, you gotta know that God's working. You gotta know that the Lord is doing the work of salvation in the midst of, of the turmoil. Lord, please help us to see from your perspective. Verse five, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So Paul's saying, even right now, if you're doubting that God's working in the nation of Israel, there is a remnant that God is working in through the election of grace. Paul's life is a testimony to this, and others. Peter, many of the, the disciples were, were Jews. How about currently, today, 2015? That's what we're in, right, 2015? Are there Jews, Israelites, who have come to know Christ as their savior? Absolutely, Joel Rosenberg is, is one who, who comes to mind. And he's writing much on, on this topic. If you wanna learn more about what God is currently doing in, in Israel, you can read some of his books and read his blog. Amazing testimony that God's working still in the nation of Israel, that Jews are coming to saving faith. Jews for Jesus is an amazing ministry. It's a ministry that, that I've heard of, of, I think about as long as I've been alive. 
And it's Jews that are sold out to Jesus Christ who have met the Messiah. So even though largely in the nation of Israel they reject Christ, there is that remnant, there is that election of God's grace. In verse six, and if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. For if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. We're reminded of what the definition of grace is. It's the free gift of God, not given with the eye to the performance or potential in the one receiving, but only given out of the kindness of the giver. It's only given out of the kindness of the giver. Not out of performance or potential. God doesn't give grace to us because he's like, oh, you have so much potential. He doesn't give grace to us out of some kind of performance in the past or the future, analyze verse six. If it's grace, it can't be works. So if God saves by grace, we can't work for it. Otherwise, it's no longer grace. It's no longer this benevolent gift from the giver. But if it's works, if we're doing it by performance, it's no longer grace at all. It can't be both. It can't be grace and works. It can't be grace or works. It has to be the grace of God. And that's oftentimes what is the stumbling point for the nation of Israel is they want to approach God through the law, through their works instead of God's grace. Verse seven, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. So at Paul's time and time currently amongst the nation of Israel, there's some that have understood the grace of God referred to as the elect, and then there's others who were blinded. And this is a spiritual blindness that God has temporarily put upon the nation of Israel. Just as it's written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they could not see and ears that they could not hear to this very day, quoting out of Isaiah. You would think that the nation of Israel would so quickly and so clearly see that Jesus is the Messiah. We've been talking about Christ being revealed in the Old Testament. Nobody knows the Old Testament better than the nation of Israel. And you would think when they're presented with Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of those prophecies, you'd be like, yeah, I get it. I'm all, I'm all for it. But yet many times <clears throat> they're blinded. They're, there's this spirit of sleepiness, the spirit of stupor that has come over them where they can't see what's being presented right in front of them. They can't hear what's being presented right in front of them. I'm concerned uh, for the nation of America, our country, United States of America, that we have a, a similar spirit of stupor, the spiritual sleepiness that has come over us when you present the gospel, when you talk about the things of God, it's like no one heard anything, you know, no one saw anything. I'm not talking about our church, I'm not talking about our gatherings, Rocky Mountain Calvary, but I'm talking about the spiritual climate. Like, this should cause us to wake up as a country. I mean, Netanyahu coming into the United States Congress and referring to the, the book of Esther, and then he ended his speech where it was being given, and he pointed up to the roof, and he said, right here is Moses. And he quoted the book of Deuteronomy. And I just got the feeling that most in that room that were witnessing that speech, they have no idea who Moses really is from a biblical perspective. That they've never read the first five books of the Old Testament, the book of the law. Our founding fathers, the Bible meant a lot to them. They researched it. 
They built our laws off of the scripture. Even ones that didn't know Christ as their savior, they had a high regard for the things of the scriptures. I look back at even my grandparents' generation. All four of my grandparents are home to be with the Lord. And their understanding of the scriptures and the Lord and the fear of God and right and wrong is a whole different place than what my generation's at. Where very quickly we've come to a society that's biblically illiterate. And it's discouraging, but it's also exciting. I think it's something to pray for for the nation of Israel, but also for the United States of America, that we wouldn't have this spiritual stupor, that we wouldn't be in, in a place where we're not seeing and, and we're not hearing. Verse nine, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. A quote from the Psalm. So this spiritual condition where they rejected Christ and the spiritual sleepiness that would come upon them was predicted through the Old Testament scriptures. And there's a reason for it. In verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. So they haven't stumbled to the place where they're never gonna get up again. And that's what you've gotta understand, that from the scriptures, from a spiritual perspective, not just from a political perspective, not just from a geographical perspective, but there's a future plan for the nation of Israel, that they're gonna get up, that they're gonna know Christ, that they're gonna be saved, that it won't be just a small remnant, but it'll be the collective group, the majority. And it goes on and says, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So they stumbled at Jesus Christ, giving them opportunity for the Gentiles to be saved, that we Gentile believers, and I'm making a little bit of an assumption, some of you may be Jews and you may be Israelites that are born again in Christ Jesus, you're doubly blessed. Most of us are Gentiles, meaning we're non-Jews ethnically. So God works in the Gentile world. Why? So that we, Gentile believers, could provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy. That they would see an intimacy that we have with God that they long for. That they would see that we're enjoying a forgiveness that they strive for. That they would see in our lives that there's a peace that surpasses understanding that they long, that they can't attain on their, their own works. And we see uh, provoking to jealousy a lot happening in human relationships. You get a toddler that's not concerned with a toy. I mean, this toy is old news, old hat, don't play it with it anymore. And then another toddler comes over to play. Or a sibling comes into the room and they pick up this truck that has lost the affection, that has lost the admiration, and all of a sudden, this toddler goes, that's mine. That's my favorite toy. That's the best thing ever. I got to scream and holler to, to get that back. And the parents in the room are going, wait a second. You, had, you didn't want anything to do with this until this kid walked in or this sibling walked in. You know, sometimes in dating relationships, some of you may be married to your spouse because at one point, they weren't interested in you and you were really interested in them during this dating time. And so you finally decided to move on and you dated someone else. Then they got provoked to jealousy. They're like, oh, I didn't realize how great she was. I didn't realize how great he was. And then they won you back and you're currently married today, 
right? There's something in the human heart that realizes what we had once we lose it and someone else shows appreciation for it and gives attention to it. That's the same way with the nation of Israel. They've disregarded the Lord, but the Gentiles have laid hold of Christ, hopefully then provoking them to jealousy. That was God's plan. That's how God is using this. In verse 12, now if their fall is richness for the world and their failure, richness for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. That's a powerful verse. If through their stumbling, it resulted in salvation for the Gentiles, then what's God gonna do through the fullness of the nation of Israel? Israel's not gonna get wiped off the map. God is gonna continue to bring more and more people to Christ in the nation of Israel in Jews through, throughout the world. As we do get into Revelation and this 144,000 that I referred to, they're gonna go out into a Christ-rejecting world. Jewish evangelists, knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior, filled with the Holy Spirit, modern-day Apostle Paul's. We are testimonies of what God has done through the fallen state of the nation of Israel. Wow, I can't wait to see the fullness of the nation of Israel. I can't wait to see when they recognize that Jesus Christ is their savior. Zechariah 13 tells us Christ's second coming, he lands on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives splits and living water goes forth. And the Jews, the nation of Israel, ask Jesus, where did you get those wounds? He still bears the wounds of the cross, the lamb that was slain. Jesus declares in the house of my friends, And that's when Israel corporately, collectively comes into this fullness of understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. It's gonna be powerful and it's gonna be wonderful. We do see a pattern throughout the book of Acts that many times when Jews rejected the gospel, then the gospel went out to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, Acts 18, and Acts 28. And so it was through their fall that it came to the riches of of the Gentiles. In verse 13 But I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save so me of them. Paul's saying, I'm speaking to Gentiles. There's a lesson for Gentile believers to learn. He's also saying, I'm gonna boast of what God has done in the Gentile world to hopefully move the Jewish people to a place of salvation. Verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from death? Again, allowing us to look forward to and hope what the fullness of Israel is gonna be like. For if the first fruit is holy, then the lump also is holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. This goes back to the Old Testament and giving the first fruits. If you had a crop and you had your your first harvest as you'd give to the Lord, you wouldn't allow your leftovers to go to God, you'd give your first fruits to the Lord. And if you give the first fruits to the Lord, then all of it becomes holy. So the message here is, as Israel comes into fullness, as God is faithful to Israel, it represents of God's faithfulness to the whole. Verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, 
And with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So this is the message going to us Gentile believers. The lesson for us to learn is that we were of this wild olive tree. Here we were, apart from the things of God, not having that biblical heritage. We were then grafted in and we became part of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So, so here we were wild over here and now we've been grafted in. So this is our attitude in verse 18. Do not boast against the branches, but if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Remember how Kent talked in chapter nine that there's this division between Jews and Gentiles in the early church, that Jews could tend to look down on the Gentiles and Gentiles could despise the Jews. So it'd be very easy for these Gentile believers to start to feel kind of smug, to start to feel kind of arrogant. Why do you guys reject Christ? Why do you stumble over the cross? That was such an easy message for me to receive. I was ready to receive the grace of God. I knew that, that I was a mess. Israel, why can't you get it together? Why can't you trust in, in Christ as your savior? And here's the message. Don't, don't boast against the branches. Don't, don't become arrogant or or haughty. Remember that the root supports you. You don't support the roots. And hear me out on this as we've received salvation through the nation of Israel. Why? Because Jesus is an Israelite. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that through Abraham's seed, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And so us being grafted in, we shouldn't despise, but be in a place of appreciation idea of branches and trees is rich with meaning throughout the scriptures. We have the vine, the fig tree, and the olive tree all used in scripture to speak of our relationship with God. Verse 19, you say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of their unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Don't be haughty but fear. So why are we grafted in? Because of faith in Jesus Christ. Why did they stumble? Why were they broken off and we'll see temporarily because of their unbelief. So instead of being prideful, there should be a humility about us where we want to continue in faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. So if God brought discipline upon the nation of Israel for their unbelief, would he not do the same in our lives as well? Verse 22, therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell severity, but towards you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. It's kind of a lot to swallow, isn't it? Verse 22, stop and consider and meditate upon the goodness of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, but also on the severity of God, the judgment of God. God possesses both attributes, doesn't he? And he brought goodness into our lives. Why? Because of our faith in Jesus Christ. He brought severity onto the nation of Israel. Why? Because of their unbelief. So continue to trust in Christ. How do you continue in the goodness of God? By continuing to trust in Christ. My pastor growing up had this saying that always stuck with me. He said, you know, stay under the spout where the blessings come out. Stay under the spout where the blessings come out. In essence, he's saying, stay in the goodness of God. Stay in the love of God. How do you stay in the love of God? Through faith. 
and trusting in his goodness and trusting in Christ's work. Never move away from that place. Never get too big for your britches where you don't think you need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen? And as we trust in in his goodness, the Lord continues to pour out his love. In verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them again. So here Israel was broken off temporarily, stumbled but not to fall completely, that when they turn to Christ in faith, they're grafted right back in. Because if God can do that for Gentiles, he can do that for the nation of Israel. That's what we see with Jews for Jesus. That's what we see with Joel Rosenberg's ministry. That's what we pray for even more. Verse 24, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So if Gentiles can be grafted in, how much more for the nation of Israel when they trust in Jesus Christ as their savior? Verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. What mystery is he talking about? God's plan for the nation of Israel. He just went to describe how it won't be final, that there'll be a point when Israel is saved. Don't, don't lose sight of what God is doing with his people inside of the promised land. There's four times in the New Testament where God tells us to not be ignorant. I want you to know these things. Well, guess what? These are four areas that the church is usually ignorant in. So here they are. One is, don't be ignorant of Israel and God's plan for Israel. If we took a poll of the Christians in the United States, would they be able to give you a biblical view of the nation of Israel and God's plan for Israel? Probably not. The numbers wouldn't be very good at that. Another thing that God tells us to not be ignorant of is of spiritual gifts. What, what divides the body of Christ almost more than anything else? Spiritual gifts. But God tells us don't be ignorant of spiritual gifts. Study them, know them, know how the Lord uses those gifts. Don't shy away from them. Another thing that God tells us in the word is don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Don't, don't be ignorant of the devices that he used. Satan doesn't have a lot of cards in his deck. He plays the same ones over and over and over again. So God says, get to know the tools that he uses because the enemy will come against you in this area. The spiritual gifts, Satan's devices, God's plan for Israel, and then the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians. God says, don't be ignorant of the fact that believers will be caught up. But yet that is another area that a lot of times the church as a whole is ignorant in. I think a really good retreat to do someday would be on those four things. That in one weekend, you could go away saying, I know what God's word says about these four particular areas. So this is an important study that we're in tonight, to know God's plan for Israel. We accomplish one of those things. Lest you be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what happens if we're not aware of God's plan with the nation of Israel, it could be very easy for us to get puffed up in our own opinion, to get wise in our own opinion. We go on into verse 26, and so all of Israel will be saved as it is written. It's very clear God's future plan. 
Chapter 9 dealt with God's past dealing with Israel. Chapter 10 was God's present dealing with Israel. Chapter 11 is God's future plan with Israel. They will be saved. They will understand that Christ is the Messiah. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Quoting out of the Old Testament, these promises for Israel. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So Paul's saying right now, there's some Jews that are enemies to the the gospel. They don't believe in Christ, but understand that they're beloved for the Father's sake. They're, They're beloved because they're God's chosen people, and God is working this plan of salvation in their lives. A great promise to lay hold of, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So God's calling and gift upon the nation of Israel, he's gonna stick to those promises because of his unconditional love. Do you ever blow it in your walk with the Lord, come back, repent, start walking with the Lord, show the fruits of repentance, God's work of transformation in your life, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, God could never use me again. God couldn't use my life because I messed up. I did things that I shouldn't do. I did things I never wanted to do. I did things I never said I would do. So I know God loves me and I know God forgives me, but he could never use me again. Well, you gotta wrestle with Romans eleven twenty nine for a little bit. What does Romans eleven twenty nine say? God's gifts and his callings are irrevocable. And the nation of Israel is a testimony to that. Does that mean that it's a license to go out and sin? Does that justify rebellion in our lives? No way. We all know this. The way of the transgressor is hard. Agreed? Man, it's not easy to go down this road. It hasn't been easy on Israel to walk in idolatry in the Old Testament, to reject Christ as, as their Savior. But God hasn't stopped loving the nation of Israel. And when they come to the Lord in faith, that calling is gonna be there. Those gifts are, are gonna be there. Jonah, as he didn't wanna go to Nineveh, went the opposite direction of God's calling. Found himself in a great fish. Repents after three days. It took him three days in the belly of the fish before he repented. He was so stubborn. The fish put him up on the shore And what did God tell him to do? Go to Nineveh. God didn't go to Jonah and say, well, you're rebellious, so I'm not gonna use you. You're rebellious, so my calling has gone away. He said, Jonah, I still have the same calling on your life. Isn't that amazing? And then Jonah's not very happy about it. He doesn't love the Assyrian people because they've persecuted the nation of Israel. So he goes into Nineveh with a bad attitude. He says, repent or judgment's gonna come. The whole city repents. Maybe one of the largest revivals in in all of history. It's a testimony of God's grace. You've ever served the Lord with the wrong attitude? I have. (laughs) I probably will in the future sometimes. Sometimes it's amazing that there's obedience in our lives and the Lord starts working on the attitudes after that. I think for some tonight, that's a message from the Lord. Get up, go to your Nineveh. Yeah, you've been in the belly of the whale for a while. It hasn't been fun, you learned some lessons. You'll be able to share those with others. But the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The amazing grace of the Lord. 
These last few verses give us a lot to meditate upon, a lot to chew on. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedience that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. So Israel was disobedient, so Gentiles could receive mercy, so that our mercy could then overflow into Israel's disobedience. Did you follow that? (laughs) Amazing plan of God. Verse 32, for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Would anybody come up with this plan in order to bring Gentiles to salvation? It's almost like going, okay, you have two kids. You've got the oldest and the youngest. And so you set this plan in motion that the oldest is just gonna blow it. Have a hard heart, have a heart of unbelief so that the youngest would see the value of taking a different path. And that a lot of times happens in families, doesn't it? You're watching your sibling, you're like, I don't wanna do that. Man, every time he does that, he gets in a lot of trouble. So I'm I'm gonna do something else. So then all this mercy goes on the youngest and then the the oldest realizes what is missing out and they decide to come along as well. And it's great that they've both come along at the end, but who wants their oldest to go through that? Who's gonna sign their oldest up for that? No, we don't want that as a parent. But here God in his plan, he set all of this in motion with the nation of Israel having this temporary stumbling so there could be the fullness of the Gentiles so the Gentiles in turn could provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy and it's blowing Paul's mind here. And he begins to rejoice in the depths of God's character and he goes from theology to doxology. He goes from this doctrine to worship and he applies this in worship and he says, God, the riches of your wisdom and knowledge, they're, they're unsearchable. So if we were to take God's wisdom and we were to take God's knowledge, we could search it out every day of our life and never come to the bottom of it. We could search it out for all of eternity and never come to the bottom of it. It doesn't mean that we don't try. It's a wonderful endeavor, but it does mean of the majesty of God. J.B. Phillips, he put it this way. If God were small enough to be figured out, he wouldn't be large enough to worship. So we continue to understand more and more about the Lord, but there's still so much about God that we don't get and we don't understand. And God's dealing with Israel is one of those things. It's one of God's ways that are mysterious. Do you ever have God move in your life and you just totally don't get it? God, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand this. I trust that you're good, but I don't get the logic behind it. And that's where we come to this truth and we go, God, you're unsearchable. And your judgments, they're way past finding out. And then verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Do you know what God's up to? Do you know what God's up to with all this turmoil in the Middle East? got Iran and their trouble. You've got ISIS and 
They're double trouble. This is craziness. What's God doing? I don't know. I have no idea what he's doing. I have a hard enough time what he's doing in my life, let alone trying to figure out what's going on in the Middle East. And then I sit down and talk with you as your pastor and you're looking for some counsel and some insight and I look at you and go, I, I have no idea. Like, I'm sorry, but I just, I have no idea. I have no clue. I don't, I don't know what God's doing, but I know he's good. I know it's painful sometimes. I know it's a hard rock to walk, road to walk, but God's at, at work. He's doing something wonderful. He's doing something mysterious. We don't know his mind. And then who has become his counselor? Can you give God counsel? Do you think God's going to the UN and the UN's given counsel to God on the things of the world? Thankfully not. Thankfully that's not the case. Thankfully he's not seeking our counsel as well. But how many times have we tried playing the counselor of God? Let's be honest, we've all done that. Lord, I trust you, but it'd be really great if it worked out this way. If you were to ask me, this is the outcome that I would really like. I, I want this job to work out. I want this relationship to work out. I want this health difficulty to, to work out. I mean, just to share a little bit of sometimes how I wrestle with this in my own life is it's my dad's birthday tomorrow. He turns third, uh, 63 and he's got Parkinson's disease. And when we get together for a meal, his hand goes up like this. And it takes a long time for him to get one bite of food in his mouth. And his, his steps are starting to get smaller. And I don't like it. I don't, I don't understand it. Who likes to see their father go through suffering at an age where they should still be healthy? And it's a small thing from what I know a lot of you go through. But you know what? I have great comfort to know that God is good. I don't understand God's ways. I don't understand why the Lord allows my dad to have Parkinson's disease. But I also have to share with you more of the story because when he was 51 years old, he got diagnosed with cancer and he was told that he wasn't going to live beyond six months. He literally had to search for doctor after doctor just to treat him. He had prostate cancer. It had spread out of his prostate, into his lymph nodes, his PSA was out the roof. And that's been 11 years now, 12 years now. And so who am I? I'm not God's counselor. God could have taken him to be home to be with the Lord when he's 51. So we feel really grateful that he's with us even if he has to suffer and go through Parkinson's. And if you have to be alive with Parkinson's, now is the best time in history to be alive with Parkinson's because of all of the, the treatment that's been availed. What's my dad experienced in those last 12 years? Amber and I were the only ones that were married when he got diagnosed with, with cancer. Amber just found out that she was pregnant with Hannah. So he's experienced the birth of all of his grandchildren, which is four from Amber and I, two from my sister, two from my brother. My brother and his wife are about ready to have another. So now there's a plethora of grandchildren in, in my father's life. He's witnessed the, the marriage of my brother, the marriage of my sister. A lot has happened in those 12 years that God could have chosen in his sovereignty to, to take my dad home. But this is what I had to wrestle with when he was diagnosed with cancer. 
I wasn't ready for my dad to go home to be with the Lord. But if he did, I had to accept the fact that God knows better than me. That God loves my dad more than I love him. And if 12 years ago, that was the time for him to go home to be with the Lord, that was the time. See, in this foundation of this is what God's doing in Israel. But the real personal side is what God's doing with the death of a loved one in your family. What God's doing with a physical disease. What God's doing through a relationship. What God's doing through a loss of a job. And all of a sudden this becomes a lot more personal, doesn't it? We go, God, I don't understand your ways. I don't understand what what you're doing. But I trust you and I trust your goodness. And I don't need to be your counselor. I don't need to instruct you. Verse 35, or who has given to him and it shall be repaid to him. So who's given to God where then God is in a place where he's a debtor. He's not a debtor to anyone. He's a gracious giver, but he's not one that is an employer and he he gives out wages. So this is how this chapter ends in verse 36. It says, for of him and through him and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever, amen. So of him, he's the source. He's the source of all things. And through him, he's the sustainer. He's the worker of all things. He's not only the source, but he's the one who sustains, who creates, it's through him. And to him, it's for him, he's the purpose. Be glory forever and ever. And this verse sums up our response to God's goodness and the mystery of his working, whether it's in the nation of Israel, our own lives personally. So here's some application. Stand with Israel. Stand with Israel. Bless the nation of Israel. God says he will bless you if you bless them. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Israel's example of God's unconditional love and then allow the mystery of God's working to move you to worship. Don't get caught up in the fear. Don't get caught up in the turmoil. Get caught up in the worship. Go, okay, Lord, this is painful. This is difficult. I don't understand this, but I do understand your good. No better place to reflect upon the goodness of God than at the communion. Okay, Lord, I'm going to evaluate this difficulty in my life through the lens of your broken body and your shed blood. So let's do that tonight.